I'm actually very optimistic right now about the future. I, you know, there are areas where I have huge concerns, you know, obviously climate change, the rise of fascism in the United States, the rise of violence in the United States, the number of guns in the United States, the rise of these militias. And yet I think that in the, con in the, in the, in the broader political context anyway, climate change is almost a whole other category of discussion. But although we are addressing that too, and Biden just passed the most, you know, the, the single most consequential piece of climate legislation in the history of the country. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic, actually. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Shortly after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, progressive talk radio host Tom Hartman introduced a new segment on his radio show on WDEV in Vermont. He invited Vermont Congressman Bernie Sanders on for a segment that he dubbed Brunch with Bernie. The program featured Vermonters calling in to pepper Bernie with questions, and the congressman took on all comers and all issues. The program was a hit, and Hartman took Brunch with Bernie national when he moved his show to Air America and Sirius XM. These freewheeling national town halls were how many people around the country were introduced to Bernie Sanders. Tom Hartman has been broadcasting for the past two decades on radio, TV, on the web, and satellite radio. He is a prolific journalist and writes a daily column at HartmanReport.com. He's a four-time winner of a Project Censored Award, and he is the New York Times best-selling author of over 30 books. His latest books are The Hidden History of Neoliberalism and The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, which were both published this year. Well, Tom Hartman, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be back with you. Listen, radio listeners in Vermont uh, may have first been introduced to you back when you were hosting Brunch with Bernie. So uh, take us back to what that was and when that was um, and how you thought this guy Bernie Sanders was important enough to put on the national airwaves. Well, Brunch with Bernie started, as I recall, in uh, either late 2003 or early 2004. And uh, Bernie had done a radio show on, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the call letters of the station there in central Vermont, but it's a pretty good sized station. Well, you're talking about and, WDEV? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Well, that, that's the station you're being heard on right now, in addition to the podcast. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. And, um, and, and, in fact, Louise and I got to know the owners pretty well, and it was, it was a great station. So, um, the uh, but but uh, apparently the uh, campaign laws had changed or whatever, and uh, and the and the local Democratic Party was or Republicans or somebody was complaining about Bernie be having his own show, and so he had to pull that during the campaign. And so uh, the guy who owned the station said, you know, why this you is Ken Squire. You're talking yeah, about Ken. Yeah. Is Ken still around? Yes, he is. Oh, thank God. He, he's such a wonderful man. And, yes. Um, so uh, anyhow, he he uh, he said, why don't, you, why don't you put Bernie on your show? You know, and at the time, you know, we were just starting out. The, the show was just a few months old and we were doing it out of our house in Montpelier, the old Thomas Wood, modern Wood house. And um, so we met with Bernie. Uh, you know, I met him a couple of times, but I don't think he knew who I was. And we got together and had lunch with him and and um, he just started, you know, and, and and it break it broke all the rules of radio. You know, I, it, I, I just completely get out of the way. It's no longer my show. I would just 
play traffic cop with callers. And uh, it worked really well. We did it for 11 years. I'm, I have to think that this is, I know that in people writing about Bernie, uh, now that he's a national figure, often kind of point back to that as the one of the early moments when he was speaking to a national audience. And it was very freewheeling. And Bernie really sort of distinguished himself because he would take on all comers. Um, and I don't know, what, what stands out in your mind? What signaled to you? Um, what do you see? What did you see then that you now see sort of the fruits of? We we uh, in fact, Bernie made it clear that he wanted it this way. Uh, we not only did not screen callers for being Bernie friendly, uh, but when people called who were hostile to Bernie, he was like, please, you know, put them on. I want to talk to those people. And uh, so the only the only people that we ever, you know, didn't put it on the air were people who were just obviously intoxicated or, or screaming obscenities. You know, that would happen occasionally. But um, outside of that, uh, you know, as you said, it was take all comers. And and uh, we did it every Friday for 11 years. And and uh, by by the next year, I believe it was um, our show had gotten picked up by Sirius XM. Actually, back then it was just Sirius. And uh, and we were on, as I recall, around 25 or 30 stations around the country. Hmm. And uh, so it, it created a national footprint. I mean, Bernie was creating his own national footprint at the same time. He would, you know, he was really starting to get some publicity for his positions and and be taken very seriously. And so I can't uh, and wouldn't take credit for his, you know, national posture. But I don't think it hurt. Um, but I, you know, whatever small role I may have played in not just helping make Bernie a national figure and a, and a serious candidate for the presidency, but also in, I, I, I think this is the most important part. I believe that Bernie's candidacy, particularly in 2016, altered the course of American politics. How I think so? One of, the, one of the most consequential events of the last two or three decades. Yeah, how, how so? Say more about that. Well, Bernie, Bernie was saying things that uh, had been previously considered unsayable. He was, he was, he would speak truths about issues that, uh, you know, people didn't want to discuss. And, and, uh, you know, uh, the democratic party at that point in time was very much enthralled to neoliberalism and, you know, Bill Clinton had embraced it full, full throatedly in 1992. And, uh, and Bernie was, you know, completely the opposite of a neoliberal. He was, he was an old deal or a new deal, you know, old line Democrat and or a democratic socialist or whatever you want to call him. And so I think people were just blown away by a politician who was not only willing to speak the truth about issues, but willing to take on the party that he was most closely aligned with when, and he didn't do it with rancor and he didn't do it with finger pointing, but you know, you know, his style. I mean, he, he well, just, he did it. Uh, very much in the same way as he did it with brunch with Bernie. And you know what what I recall of those uh, radio broadcasts, you know, politically minded talk shows, people often come in with a pretty big head of steam about something. They're pissed off about something and they're calling in to let you know about it and how outrageous it is. And Bernie just seemed to always be able to meet people where they were. And, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of part of the fun of the, that format that, you know, you, you, you watch, you hear somebody deliver their best shot and then there's often a shot back. But he so often took 
the you know the air out of the situation by acknowledging kind of the essential truth of what somebody was saying no matter what they were saying so um maybe I think we that the, the thing that I've noticed, uh, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of politicians <laughs> doing this radio show for 20 years and uh, 19 years. And one of the thing, things that I've come to be convinced of is that many people are really at, at the bottom of it all, at the, at the core, are unsure about their own personal identity. They're, they, they, they find identity by identification with tribe. I am who I am because I'm a Republican. I am who I am because I'm a professor. I am who I am because I'm, you know, I, I uh, drive a garbage truck, whatever it may be. I am who I am because I love Donald Trump. They, they find some external reference source that defines their sense of self. And so when that external reference source is challenged, they react as if they have been personally as 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 if their own existence has been challenged because the existence of their ego of their of their sense of self it literally has been challenged and and i find this to be true of uh, sadly of probably a majority of politicians that i've known over the years and uh, at least half anyway and uh, and therefore they respond to things like challenges by being pissed off or rancorous or you know rah, 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 rah. Um, because they're because it's hitting them personally. Bernie, in my experience, never had any doubt about who he was and did not define himself by his politics. I mean, he's very clear about his politics. He lives in the world of his politics. He's passionate about his politics. Um, but I could imagine Bernie being the publisher of a newspaper. You know, uh, I, I could imagine Bernie. I, I could imagine Bernie doing dozens of things and still being Bernie. Um, there was just a, a, a genuine reality, a, a sense of he here's a guy who knows who he is. And and that's when, when you find somebody like that in politics, they tend to go a long way because because, like you said, they're they're relatively unflappable because it, it it's it's just about the issues. You know, I am not my politics, but I can debate them. So as somebody who has been on the air in variety of ways, from TV to radio, to podcasting uh, for over 20 years, um, often or perhaps always live call-in format. Um, what do you feel like has that you notice has changed? Because you're interacting with an, a national audience. Um, what, what changed over these years that you've been doing this? I think the biggest change, and I actually, I started in radio in 1967. I was 16 years old and I was a weekend DJ doing country and Western music. And, and then um, a couple of years later, I, I got a gig in the same radio station. I worked for, for a bunch of different radio stations in Lansing, did rock and roll and other things. And then ended up back at WITL doing news, which I did for seven years, the morning news. And um, back then we were operating under the fairness doctrine and we were operating under ownership rules and Reagan in 87 blew up the fairness doctrine and Clinton in 96 signed the telecommunications act, which ended the ownership rules. And so in the large arc, I mean, I was only in radio for 10 years back then. And then I got out of radio in 73, I think it was, or thereabouts, maybe 75, and um, in, in, in that large arc of time, I'd say the biggest change that I've seen is 
in who owns the stations and how and why they're being programmed. And, and, and what the sense, what the ownership's sense of what they're doing is. Uh, when I was on the radio in Lansing, there were seven radio stations in Lansing. I think there still are. Every single one was owned by a local family or a local group of families. WTIL, where I was on the air, was owned by three guys, a, a broadcast engineer, a sales guy, and an old radio guy who got together, pooled their money, mortgaged their homes, and started a radio station from scratch. That was how most of the stations in the in town, uh, WJIM, the, the one TV station in town also had a radio station, was named after their son, Jim, when he was born. It was the same year that they started the radio station. Um, so that there's not a single radio station in Lansing any longer that's owned by anybody who lives in Lansing. I'm not sure any of them are even owned by people who, own it, who live in Michigan. Well, it, so, it's, it's worth interjecting at this point, Tom, that... You are speaking on uh, on WDEV. Uh, so the Vermont conversation is both on WDEV and also on Vermont Digger, uh, where the podcast lives. WDEV has just celebrated its 90th birthday, and I believe um, is the oldest independent family-owned commercial radio station in the country. So uh, to underscore the point you're making, there are very few left. And uh, you're on one of the giants of it. And this used to be the norm. And it was, you know, it was 100% of my experience in Michigan in the 60s and 70s in radio. And uh, in fact, for uh, one summer, we actually, Louise and I went up to uh, northern Michigan, up to the Upper Peninsula, and I got a, a job with a little radio station up there. I, 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 there was only two of us who ran a station. I'd come in in the morning, empty the waste baskets, fire up the transmitter and turn the station on. The other guy came in around four o'clock in the afternoon. He owned it and he would, he would shut it down when the sun went down. Um, you know, it was a little daytimer in Newberry, Michigan. Um, but again, he, you know, was a local guy who started a radio station and, and all that's gone. And so now, you know, back then, even the families who owned these stations, yeah, they wanted to make a living at it. But they viewed what they were doing as media, as news, as, as a public service, as something that was essential to democracy, as, as the public square, the, the stuff that the founders talked about, the stuff that Alexis de Tocqueville praised and said that it was the, re, you know, the free press in America was the reason why we could have a functioning democracy. In fact, he speculated in 1831 that, that because France did not have as free a press as the United States did, he didn't think that democracy could work or, or would survive over the long term in France, the way it could here. Hmm. Um, That's all gone now as a result of, or most of that has gone now as the result of those two major, major steps in 87 and 96. And I think that we need to try to back back away from that. We need to, to break up these giant monopolies. We need to go back to locally owned radio and television. We need to reinstate the ownership rules. I think that's probably the most important thing that can be done. Well, let's um, move now to uh, some of your writings and your latest book, which is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Um, let's start with the basics. Explain what neoliberalism is. Neoliberalism is, a, is an economic and ultimately political philosophy that came out of a, a, a meeting that the first meeting was in, as I recall, 1935 in Paris. And then but the, the, the really consequential meeting was in, in the early 40s in, in, uh, uh, on Mount Pellerin, uh, Mont Pellerin in, in, uh, in uh, Switzerland. And it was a group of economists and a few other folks uh, who got together and 
their the big question that they were facing in the 30s was uh, we saw a uh, Russia go communist with the Bolshevik Revolution, and we are watching Germany go fascist, and Italy had already gone fascist, and and uh, I believe Spain at that point had gone fascist as well. And so the question was, how do we construct or support a, a, a liberal democracy that will not succumb to either fascism or communism? How can we find that middle ground? Which was a very noble you know, idea. And being, you know, Abraham Maslow, the famous psychologist once made the comment that when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. Um, these guys were all economists, and so they figured that the solution to, to ending communism and, or avoiding communism and fascism would be economics. And uh, back then, the word, and today actually still in Europe, um, the word liberal is used to define what you and I might refer to as libertarian economics. Liberal means free of regulation, unregulated, laissez-faire capitalism. And uh, they didn't want to do that. That had already been tried. Um, and uh, they felt that it didn't go far enough. And so they wanted to be the new li liberalism, thus the word neoliberalism, which they invented at that meeting. And then began a, a, a mostly Miss, uh, von Mises, von Hayek, and, and uh, Milton Friedman. He was the one American in the crowd. Um, then went on to become evangelists for this and, and started the Mount Pelerin Society and, and uh, you know, uh, came to the United States. All three of them actually, uh, well, at least two of them, uh, Hayek and, and Friedman were here in the United States and, uh, you know, started selling this stuff. And it finally got bought in America. You know, in the 50s, when they were selling it, it was considered crackpot fringe. By the 60s, Barry Goldwater was curious, but not fully embracing it. But it became the official policy, essentially, of, of the Republican Party and of the of the United States government in 1981 with the election of Ronald Reagan. And so distill it when you say it became the official policy. What did that policy in its, you know, Reagan era iteration, what did it consist of? Sure. The, 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 the core tenets of neoliberalism are that the market that a million decisions are being made every second in the marketplace people are deciding what to buy and what not to buy what to sell and what not to sell and that that is an intelligence in and of itself that can never be re replicated by wise elders or academics or or bureaucrats trying to figure out the best way to do things so if we could have the marketplace drive our democracy drive our country drive our decisions rather than having our decisions drive the marketplace, that would produce the, the most organic outcome because it would have the largest amount of essentially votes in it. Now, on, at its surface, it seems to make sense. Uh, there's a whole bunch of problems with it, and it, it turns out it doesn't work at all. Uh, the biggest problem is that whoever has the biggest influence in the marketplace ends up making the decisions, you know, and owning everything. But um, the, the principal tenets of it were cut taxes dramatically at, at, for the people at the very top because they're the ones who are driving the marketplace and therefore they should be the ones you know, gaining all the benefits and you don't want to disincentivize them. Um, so low taxes on rich people, low taxes on corporations, very minimal taxes on corporations. Um, that labor is simply another commodity, just like steel or, or fava beans, you know, it can be bought and sold and it should be bought and sold anywhere in the world. And so there should be no longer any restrictions on 
on who can hire whom. Uh, labor unions are an impediment to that process, and so labor unions should be destroyed or outlawed or, or, or uh, neutered anyway. Um, that, uh, that wages are entirely a relationship, a private contractual relationship between employer and employee, so there should be no minimum wage laws. Um, and uh, in fact, they, they, they don't even believe in child labor laws, frankly. Um, and that, um, and, the, and one of the biggest parts of it is the idea that regulation uh, always distorts marketplaces. And therefore, um, even, even uh, in fact, uh, there's an entire chapter in, in Milton Friedman's book, his first book on this topic, uh, arguing that we shouldn't even license physicians. Um, that any kind of regulation is just distorting marketplaces. And, and, and so you ask the question, well, what happens when you've got terrible doctors or what happens when somebody is selling, you know, a, a magic elixir that's going to cure your arthritis and it's filled with lead or something. And the answer that they had was, well, when people start dying, word will spread and that doctor will lose his patients and that product will lose its customers. And that'll be the end of that. And, 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 uh, you know, if a, company employs practices that poison the town, they'll be embarrassed and they'll stop doing it. You make answer. you make a big statement. It's in the it's in the subtitle of your book that this gutted America. How so? Well, it, the, the deregulation has made it, uh, you know, in, in many ways now, obviously, it, it's, there's been waves of deregulation and then re-regulation and the de, you know, because we've been going back and forth between Republican and Democratic administrations, even though the the, the Clinton and Obama administrations embraced neoliberalism. Um, but, uh, you know, deregulation has allowed, particularly deregulation of the size of a company. The, the Reagan in 1983 instructed the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice to stop enforcing the antitrust laws. So we had this mergers and acquisition mania that happened in the 80s, you know, with people like Michael Milken, the masters of the universe. You know, Michael Douglas made a, a movie out of it, uh, Wall Street. I think Oliver Stone made that movie. And um, so the, the result of that was that we ended up with these giant corporate players owning the marketplace. Um, I wrote a book about this on Monopoly. In fact, I think you and I talked about it a, a year or two ago, um, The Hidden History of American Monopoly. And there's literally not a, a consequential industry left in America that is not more than 80% controlled by fewer than five companies, which operate as cartels. So we no longer have competition in America. That's one of the most destructive outcomes in terms of regulation. In terms of taxes, we've seen a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from working class and middle class people to the top 1% as a result of the top 1% taxes being cut and as a result of the destruction of, of labor's power in the, in the marketplace, the, you know, the right to unionize. So those things... Um, in aggregate, I think really paved the way for Donald Trump, you know, the, the gutting of the American middle class. Um, we, we went, when Reagan came into office, over 60% of Americans were in the middle class, which meant basically one person could, um, uh, one person working could support a family, could buy a home, could buy a car every couple of years, could take a vacation, could have a, a quote, normal middle class life. That was 60, 60, 65% of us. Now it's less than 45% of us or fewer than 45% of us. And um, we had factories all across the United States. We made things because we protected our domestic industries. The average tariff in the United States on products imported into the United States uh, was in the, in the neighborhood of the high teens and the low 20s. 
Um, and Reagan did, you know, he didn't completely do away with that, but he started the negotiations that led to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which led to the WTO, the GATT to the WTO. And he also uh, began the negotiations that that led to the NAFTA uh, treaty. I, I would call it a treaty. They call it a trade deal that uh, ultimately uh, George Herbert Walker Bush proposed and Bill Clinton signed. And uh, the result of that is that over over 50,000 factories, over 10 million jobs left the United States because they were jobs here that paid 20, 30, $40 an hour. And in China, the same labor would could be done for a dollar an hour. And those are problems that continue to haunt the United States. And they're problems that Donald Trump identified in 2016 that none of his Republican colleagues were willing to discuss. And that only a small slice of Democrats were even willing to discuss, you know, the Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Browns of the world. Most Democrats were still in on you know, completely down with neoliberalism right through the end of the Obama era. And so it's been a real shock and a very pleasant one over the last year and a half to watch Joe Biden take on neoliberalism regularly. I realize he's doing it in a cautious and measured fashion, and, and probably it's necessary to do it that way to get there. But now we've got more and more Democrats. Tim Ryan, for example, you know, he's running in Ohio. Um, I met Tim Ryan years ago. I, he and I both spoke at an event that Marianne Williamson put on. And, you know, great guy, but kind of neoliberal in some of his policies. Well, he's abandoned all that. And he's just all in on, on you know, going back to the New Deal and bringing jobs back to America. That makes me very pleased, <laughs> you know, I, I and very hopeful, frankly, that mm -hmm. that 40 year uh, period that we endured of Reaganism in the United States is finally coming to an end. You mentioned that Biden is now taking steps to undo neoliberalism. How so? He's openly supporting unions and unionization. He is talking about enforcing the antitrust laws. And in fact, we're already seeing now motion in that direction. In fact, if you watch television, you'll see ads that are saying, don't mess with our tech companies, you know, and, and things like that. Well, that's that's uh, basically, you know, Google, Facebook, and Apple saying, don't break up our companies. Uh, our business model is based on monopoly to a large extent. Um, he is uh, he is uh, talking about trying to to uh, allow the government to negotiate uh, things like drug prices. He's he's returning us. You know, one of the core tenets of neoliberalism is the government can't do anything right. The the it, at its logical extreme, neoliberalism suggests that the government should run the army to protect the country, but even the army itself should be mostly private. And in fact, 50% of our entire defense budget right now now goes to private for-profit corporations. Whereas when Reagan came into office, that was less than 10%. So, you know, we've got now a neoliberal military. He's, he's uh, and, and, and uh, you know, across the board, basically, you know, every part of government. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Joe Manchin got a, a provision built into that that required every single dollar to run through a private-public partnership, which is pure neoliberalism, you know, if you can't make a buck out of it. And also this, this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, same deal, um, private-public par partnerships. Um, but Biden has spoken against that. And, uh, you know, he doesn't do it so much in his speeches, but we know from the negotiations in the back channels and whatnot that he, he's opposed to that. He's making it he is reminding Americans that government can be a force for good, that government can do good things. I mean, Reagan famously said in his in his inaugural and, and you know, January 20th, 1981, said that, you know, government is not the, the solution to your problems. Government is the problem. 
But he went even farther than that. A couple of years later in a, in a TV interview, he said that there are no good people working in government. If they were, they would have been hired away by private industry because they can pay more. And, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of truism that a lot of people listen to and go, oh, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, and, and it was a complete dismissal of the idea of public service uh, and, and, and of the benefits of working for government, of, you know, having a stable employer and a decent pension and things like that. So I, I think across that spectrum, you're seeing the Biden administration, um, specifically in the Democratic Party, largely uh, rejecting neoliberalism. We're also, you know, I did a fundraiser for the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, which Bernie and Raul Grijalva started back in uh, around the time he was on my show. And um, that was maybe 10, 15 years ago that I did that fundraiser for them. And in fact, Raul Grijalva was running it at the time. And there were maybe 30 people who showed up. <laughs> you know, I think we raised $2,000. And, and uh, at that time, the, the Congressional Pro Progressive Caucus probably had 15 members. It's now the second largest caucus in Congress. I mean, a lot has happened yeah. as a result of people realizing they may not understand the word neoliberalism, but what we're looking at is the wreckage in both political parties and across the American landscape of 40 years of this huge experiment with neoliberalism that has utterly completely and utterly failed. There has been no dimension of neoliberalism that I can identify that has worked to the benefit of the United States. Hmm. I want to turn to some of your more recent writings. Um, you uh, write op-eds and columns and informational pieces on uh, an almost daily basis. And one of your latest is about um, how the business of tracking women and you ask whether the Republican Party is promoting the business of tracking women. Um, explain what is going on. Yeah, I published that today at HartmanReport.com, um, which is where I put my daily writings, um, if anybody's curious. Um, and the I, I talk about two things in there. One is that the sale of data has become very, very sophisticated. This was my last book, The Hidden History of Big Brother. And I was just shocked when I did the research for that book. It's a completely unregulated industry. And there are companies right now that will sell literally to any old person. I mean, I, I, I hotlinked to an article where, where uh, in, the, in, my, in my article, where they actually went to one of these companies and just said, hi, you know, it was a, a, a reporter uh, who, who said, hi, I'm a business. Here's the name of my business. I want to buy information on women who are pregnant. And boom, he got it. Um, and, and he could track them from the abortion provider to their home and identify them and get all this information about them. So we've got that going on, and, and Congress needs to do something about that. As and soon as and just let me understand what is happening there. So these would be like the geolocation functions on your phone? That's or... correct. These are, these are giant data brokers who are buying information from companies that run operating systems or run apps on your phone, and uh, typically, that track where you are, uh, where you're traveling, how long you're there. Um, they also, if you're wearing uh, things like Fitbits and, and, and Apple Watches, I can't say specifically those because I don't, I don't, you know, have the, but, but that sort of thing. If you're wearing things that monitor, for example, your heartbeat rate um, or your body temperature, 
um, they can they can these they can they can sell information about you know or or even the thermostat companies now in your home, they can they can sell information about when you go to sleep, when you wake up, how frequently you have sex, um, and because they're monitoring your your you know your behavior there. Uh, whether you, uh, if it's a woman, whether she might be a, a, having a fertile time, you know, the, the whole rhythm method depends on taking your temperature every day. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's just this whole spectrum of data about people that is, that is now for sale. And it's, it's the major business model for most online um, free services, whether it's your email provider or whether it's your search engine um, or whether it's social media, the way that they are making their money is selling you. And now increasingly, you've got sheriff's departments and police departments and district attorneys around the country who have visions of, you know, being the hero who, who busted the, the woman who got the illegal abortion, um, who are buying this information or are starting to look at buying this information. Uh, you've also got Texas and other states that are looking to imitate Texas, where if you're just some random guy and, and, and you know, you're just a troll and your next door neighbor you think is pregnant and you can track her down and prove it, you can make $10,000 bounty. Mm -hmm. and, and Greg Abbott wants to raise that to $100,000 bounty right now. The Republicans have legislation to do that, you know, on the floor of the House right now in Texas as we're speaking. So, uh, you know, that kind of information is, is very problematic. And, and you're going to start seeing it making its way to law enforcement in ways that um, would seem would have, you know, just a year ago would have seemed, you know, 1984 dystopian ish. Um, but there it's here now. The other the other part of my article today is about crisis pregnancy centers mm -hmm. um, who are also big data. Um, there are over 3000 of them in the United States. They are hooked into, uh, most of them, about half of them are hooked into one of four or five major networks. The largest network has over 2,700 providers in it. Explain what um, crisis pregnancy centers are for people who aren't familiar with them. Sure. These are organizations that advertise in ways that cause women to think that they are uh, abortion providers or organizations that refer people out for abortions. And they continue to operate in states where abortion is completely illegal. So people just assume that it's a referral source. And you show up and you go in and the, and the office looks just like a physician's office. They typically offer free pregnancy tests. Nothing fancy about this, by the way. These are the same pregnancy tests you can buy at the local drugstore for 15 bucks. Just pee on the strip. Um, and they offer ultrasounds. About half of them in the United States offer ultrasounds. But they make it very clear in the fine print that the ultrasound is for entertainment purposes only. Um, in other words, they're not offering medical services at all. And the reason why they say that, now they're they're pitching the ultrasounds as if, hey, it sounds like real medicine. I'm going to a clinic get an ultrasound. Right. Looks and feels like a doctor, but isn't exactly. But the but because they're doing it for entertainment purposes, the their HIPAA, the the, the health privacy laws, do not cover these organizations. So before you, you come into these one of these crisis pregnancy centers, you think you're in a doctor's office, they give you a form to fill out, you give them all this personal information, your entire medical history, everything you've ever done, your marital status, where you work, what you do, how you where you live, you know, what drugs you use, whether you smoke or not, what your lifestyle is, whether you're straight or gay, everything. And now they've got this information, they feed it into this into these giant databases. This one has, you know, 2,700 of these organizations, a massive database. 
And they use that information, number one, to evangelize these women. Some women report that they get multiple phone calls every day from people begging them to not get abortions or trying to convert them to the, to the particular form of Christianity that's associated with that crisis pregnancy center. Almost all of these are affiliated with churches uh, or not necessarily affiliated, but there's a very, very close relationship there. Um, so they use that for that, but they also could use it. And several of them in their in the fine print on their websites or in their literature, I come right out and say, I quote one in the article, that you know we will turn this information over to law enforcement if they ask for it. Mm-hmm. So it's another source of law enforcement information about who's pregnant and who isn't, and and how to go after them. And 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 then of course they they meet with these women who still don't realize that they're not talking to a doctor or a nurse. And they're telling them, they're pouring their lives out to them. And they're talking about, well, I do have an aunt in, in Illinois. And maybe if I could just get on a plane and get up to Illinois, I could get an abortion there. And, and, and all this is getting written down and it's going into these databases. So this is, this is and, and, and these organizations, this is an industry. This is, a, this is probably a billion dollar industry. Nobody knows for sure. But these organizations are drawing hundreds of millions of dollars a year from, from Republican controlled states that fund them. There's an 11 to 1 ratio of crisis pregnancy centers to actual abortion providers in the state of Minnesota, for example, because Minnesota, when it was under Republican control, started funding them. They're running religious organizations running with taxpayer dollars to deceive women. And now they've got these massive databases that can be used to prosecute women. I'm very concerned about it. We um, heard recently that uh, uh, I think it was Google and or Facebook has said it will not provide information, um, I'm not sure what kind of information, for women who have gone to an abortion provider. What difference does that make? It's a small step. I mean, it, it, this this largely began with Yelp uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, crisis pregnancy centers heavily advertise on Yelp as if they are abortion providers. And Yelp has said that they are going to start identifying them as not an abortion provider. You know, it's probably weak tea. We'll find out. Um, That led to demands that uh, the search engines make it clear that when the crisis pregnancy centers come up, that that they are not offering abortion services. Um, uh, Facebook, actually, in my article, I I, I quote one group that said that uh, Facebook has been working with um, some of these groups to to buy and sell information with them. I don't know if that's still going on or not. Uh, they said that it was in violation of Facebook's policies. Whether they're enforcing their policies or not, it's hard to tell. Um, you uh, write in another piece, you describe the nightmare scenario that the Supreme Court is plotting for the 2024 election takeover. Explain what that scenario is. And, uh, you know, for people who think, this is hyperbolic and um, explain why it's not. The, there is this doctrine that the Trump, the John Eastman pitched to Donald Trump. I, I wrote an article about this actually in March of, of 2020 saying that this is what the Republicans were gonna do. And you know was roundly laughed at. <laughs> And I said, what they're going to do is they're going to get, they're going to go to the states and they're going to say the Constitution says that the states can decide how their electoral votes are cast. And uh, it doesn't say that they have to be cast the way that the majority of people in the states say that. Those are all state laws and state laws can be changed on the drop of a, you know, uh, drop of a hat. 
um, or even ignore the, the drop of a gerrymandered legislature as it would be. There you go. Exactly. And, um, you know, there's a there's a whole legal theory around this. And and that's exactly what John Eastman tried to do. You know, he, he tried to get six swing states, uh, Republican controlled swing states. Uh, the most famous, obviously, are Georgia, Michigan and, and uh, Arizona. Uh, but, you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania were part of that. And there was one other, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, tried to get them to change their electoral votes because they could, because the Constitution didn't disallow it. And as I pointed out in uh, in both in my article back in, in March of uh, 2020 and, and in this piece, um, this is exactly what happened in the election of 1876 when Sam Tilden ran against Rutherford Hayes. Tilden not only won the popular vote, he also won the Electoral College vote. But he was one vote short because four states submitted dual states slates of electors, three southern states in Oregon. Oregon was controlled by the Klan at the time, and, and the three southern states were occupied by the, Norman, by the Northern Army, Union Army. Um, so they submitted both a Democrat and a, a Democratic and a Republican you know, slate. And so it, the, the election got thrown to the House of Representatives, as the, the Constitution calls for, as the 12th Amendment calls for. So uh, that's what they tried to replicate. Now, there is a case working its way up to the Supreme Court. It'll probably be heard this fall. And that is asking the Supreme Court, can we do this? You know, can Republican controlled states? Uh, and, and by the way, you can have a Democratic governor. You know, Michigan has a Democratic governor. Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. The Constitution says that the legislature of the state shall determine how the electoral votes are cast. The governor has no say in this, can't veto it, has no control over it. So uh, the, the question is, can Republican controlled states that have Republican controlled legislatures simply decide that regardless of how people in their state voted, their electoral college votes are going to go for the Republican? And I'm very concerned because what we're hearing, you know, essentially leaked out of the Supreme Court is that the answer may well be yes. So what would that you describe a scenario? where uh, President Biden is running against Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, I guess you've, you've taken um, executive decision there and decided Trump will not be the nominee. And um, they succeed. And, and, and it's the same outcome as 2020. Uh, the Electoral College and the popular votes are won by Biden. But you say you describe how DeSantis can end up winning. How That's can he right. end up winning? Yep. He could end up winning if if enough states that are that have Republican legislatures where the people in those states voted for Biden, if the legislatures say we are going to ignore these votes and we're simply going to award the electoral college votes from our states to DeSantis. And oh, go ahead. Well, there are other critical pieces at play here, which is that the Supreme Court has also recently ruled that the Supreme Court will not get involved in overturning gerrymandered. Uh, partisan maps. So there are little big, they're not little, they're big pieces of the puzzle that are laying the ground for exactly what you're describing. Right. And and the rationale for that, for the Supreme Court saying that is that our job as a court, and this is, you know, widely accepted since the founding of the Republic, that the job of the courts is to decide matters of law, not matters of politics, that politics is something that should happen at the ballot. Uh, or under the laws of the country. And the way that the Supreme Court would probably rule in this case would be to say that the, um, that the, that the uh, 
because the Constitution says that the election is held in the state legislature rather than by the individual voters of the state, that we're going to allow the states to go along with this because this is, or at least we're not going to challenge this because this is a political, not a legal question. You explain that there is a poison pill buried in the, um, the legal argument. Uh, explain the role of Congress in this that could upend the Supreme Court's move to empower the states in this way. You'll have to remind me of that, David. It's been it's been a few months since I wrote that piece. I'm sorry. So you explain that Congress can pass a law in the same way that with Roe v. Wade, Congress can pass a law, uh, you know, oh, making yeah. abortion, you know, legislation making right. abortion legal again. Uh, yeah, essentially reinstituting. Right. This and 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 hopefully, you know, and there's some, you know some signs that they're working on on changing the electoral count act of 1887 the one that came came about as a result of that hayes tilton election uh it's still ambiguous that law of changing that law in such a way that um the supreme court can no longer rule or can't rule that the states can do whatever they want because the law no longer says that um the the the, the one question around that is whether the Supreme Court will say, yeah, but the, so the Constitution doesn't say that. So we're going to stay, you know, still go with this. And then we get to Article three, Section two of the Constitution, which says that the Supreme Court can operate, you know, with exceptions uh, defined by Congress. In other words, Congress can limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, which has basically never been done. Um, but, you know, we may even end up with that battle happening. It's hard to say. So you have been chronicling and reporting on this kind of, uh, you know, this rising tide of authoritarianism, the pushback from grassroots forces. Where do you, how do you see this contest of ideologies, of power working out in the next two years, um, since that's the issue really at hand? with new wild cards thrown in, such as uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how that has energized uh, so many people. I'm uh, of the opinion that, that we see uh, politics in the United States, but the politics, politics in the United States tends to go in cycles. And you know, basically, kind of two generation cycles where some new political fad comes along or a new political idea, and uh, you know, like neoliberalism in the '80s or like Keynesianism in 1930s, and we try it out and it works for a while or it seems to work for a while, and then eventually it doesn't work anymore or it's perceived as not working anymore or a new idea comes along that that eclipses it and gets sold to the American people. And at some point, we reach a, we reach a point where people are like, "Wait a minute, we've gone too far. They've gone too far." Um, Embrace, for example, in the the New Deal led to, you know, widespread prosperity in the United States. Widespread prosperity led to larger and louder demands for equality, uh, both for women and for minorities in the United States. That led to the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and things like that. And 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 in and in the 70s, when the promises of the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts were not be, being fulfilled, led to riots in our cities and, and protests. And of course, Vietnam exacerbated all that. And so I think you could argue that the Reagan revolution was a backlash 
to the New Deal having reached the point where it was hitting the edge of the Overton window, as it were. It was, it was, it was coming up against the edge of how much change society was willing to accept within that particular period of time. You know, the, the, the 240 year history of this country is one of continuous progressive change, but it goes in fits and starts and it tends to, to go, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. And so, you know, we, we entered into this 40 year experiment with neoliberalism. I think we're beginning a new 40 year experiment or however long it's going to be. We'll see um, with a return to the New Deal, a, a return to the politics that that uh, have largely animated the United States uh, progressive politics that have animated the United States since after the Civil War. Um, the United States is a very different country post-Civil War than it was pre-Civil War. Pre-Civil War, we had very strong states, very weak federal government. Post-Civil War, we have a very powerful federal government, very weak states. That's not going to change as much as Republicans want to try and make it change. And so I'm actually very optimistic right now about the future. I, I you know, there are areas where I have huge concerns, you know, obviously climate change, the rise of fascism in the United States, the rise of violence in the United States, the number of guns in the United States, the rise of these militias. And yet I think that in the, con in the, in the, in the broader political context anyway, climate change is almost a whole other category of discussion. But although we are addressing that too, and Biden just passed the most, you know, uh, the single most consequential piece of climate legislation in the history of the country. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic actually, David. Well, I guess that's a good note to leave on here. Uh, Tom Hartman, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. David, it's always great talking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me on your program.